Hey guys, it's Ryan. Thanks for tuning into Theology-ish. Before we jump in, I just want to emphasize that the discussions on this podcast are exploratory in nature and delve into a variety of theological perspectives. They do not strictly represent or define our personal stances on the faith nor the doctrine of our affiliated churches. We encourage listeners to reflect, question, and seek guidance from their local church leaders. Our goal is to foster understanding and curiosity. We ask that you listen with a humble and discerning mind. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to Theology-ish, your favorite podcast for all things pertaining to theology and that happen to be theology-adjacent, such as biblical studies, uh, philosophy, church history, etc., etc. I am one of your hosts, William Berry, and with me today, as always, is my co-host, Ryan Kelly. How's it going? Oh, it's pretty good, man. How's it going with you? I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Good. Just a very busy few weeks since the last time we sat down to record. A lot going on right now. Yeah, but uh, it's been good, though. Yeah, it's been good. Busy but good. 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 Yeah, there's there's good busy busy and there's bad busy and uh it's been it's been pretty good busy. All right. All right. Yeah, any anything new with you? No. No. Oh, okay. How how about you? How about you? Anything anything new going on? No, not particularly. Well, all right then. Yeah. Well, what are we talking about today, William? Well, today we are going to be talking about the mid-20th century theologian, author, and church leader, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Well, theologian might be a strong word. Uh, I think, I think uh, he probably counts as a theologian. Yeah, maybe. I, I've only read so much of his stuff, and insofar as the stuff by him that I have read, it hasn't been theological quote-unquote in nature it's it's been very much more this is how you guys ought to do this thing um yeah i don't know exegete perhaps he leans definitely more into exegesis i think generally yeah but i've heard him called a a theologian more than once he counts as a theologian close enough at least you look at his wikipedia page it says he's a theologian well, so. I've actually got that pulled up. Oh, um, all right. So we're going to be using that just uh, for some footnotes here to talk about his life and his history, because it's just the most accessible uh, line of text that tells me his life story. Um, we're just going to use that as kind of footnotes and then talk about him, some of the stuff he wrote, the the events surrounding him, that kind of thing. This is the... Uh utmost level of scholarly rigor you can expect here from us at Theology-ish. Yeah. Wikipedia. But hey, you were right, though, because the opening line to his Wikipedia page is that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German Lutheran pastor, theologian, and anti-Nazi dissident who was a key founding member of the Confessing Church. Now, there's a lot to unpack there. See... I knew that he's called a theologian on his Wikipedia page because I knew we were talking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer today and I needed to brush up on his history. So I looked at the Wikipedia page earlier today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's like you said, only the most in-depth only the most research. scholarly rigor and, and uh, 
in-depth, peer-reviewed academic sources do we engage with here? Yeah. But yeah, so Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, by all accounts, considered to be one of the more uh, more faithful, perhaps, and certainly more uh, well-written church leaders and theologians from the 20th century, right up there with C.S. Lewis and, and a few others. Um, really, really good stuff. Um, as I mentioned there, though, and not everyone knows this, is that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a part of the Lutheran Church and was, in fact, a Lutheran pastor. Now, you don't necessarily get that just from reading through some of his works, at least not the ones that I've read in in recent times. Um, it's not super obvious that he's Lutheran necessarily. So he doesn't constantly talk about how great Luther is and how— uh much he loves Martin Luther and how you should love Martin Luther. He's not constantly prattling on about the Augsburg Confession. He sure isn't, no. Oh, uh, right. Again, at least the the things by him that I've read, I've only read a few. So I, he wrote a lot of stuff, shockingly, like more than I realized. Yeah, and, he, and I haven't read most of it yet. He died when he was, what, uh, 39? Something like that. We'll have to, yeah, he was we'll have to get there. Very prolific author. For someone that, uh, I was going to say passed away so early, but he didn't so much passed away as he was uh, hung until dead by Nazis. Yeah, uh, and that's sorry, the spoiler uh, there. That's uh, the other thing is that he <laughs> is one of the better known martyrs of recent times uh, in in the modern period, so to speak. Um, you know, every once in a while we hear hear these stories about you know missionaries out in third world countries or out in sub-Saharan Africa or and these little island nations who end up getting killed by like cannibals or something. Um, you, you hear that sometimes in, in even more recent times than this, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer is probably the most well-known, I, I want to say, uh, martyrs of, of recent years. Uh, you know, it's, it's weird. World War II was like almost a hundred years ago now. Yeah. Yeah. So it it's almost been <laughs> it's almost been a century. But yes, he he's definitely one of the better so, known martyrs of the past. I'm just gonna shout this years. out because I, I absolutely love this. Uh and I know he doesn't listen to this podcast, so I doubt this is gonna get around to him. But there is a a fellow in my church congregation by the name of Mr. Charlie. And Mr. Charlie is a World War II veteran. He How is, is he? 101, going on 102. Um, his, his health has sort of declined in recent years, unfortunately. He's, he's stuck to a wheelchair now and, and some other stuff going on. Um, pray for Mr. Charlie, if you could. He is one of the nicest men I've ever met. He, he is just a joy to speak to and, and be around. Um, but yeah, he was a World War II veteran, which is super cool. Um, do, do you happen to know if he fought uh, 
in the Western Front or Pacific Theater? Or I don't know, unfortunately. I need to talk to his family and get some more info about like what specifically he did because I'd love to to hear more about his story. Um, no, I just wanted to shout out Mr. Charlie because I love Mr. Charlie and it's great to have him around. I used to to go to church with a World War II veteran whose name was uh, Mr. Richard Arnold, and he wrote a book about his experience in the war. Okay. Uh, it was called Dig and Dig Deep because uh, when he went over there to fight in Germany, he uh, had been given advice by his cousin who had already fought. Mm. And his cousin was like, hey, when you get out there, the first thing you do is dig a foxhole. Yeah. So he did. That was the first thing he did was dig a foxhole. And out of however many thousands of – American troops that fought at that battle, he was one of like two dozen that survived. Oh, it, wow. It was a absolute slaughter. Um, Man. So he, he he saw some things. Yeah. But yeah, look up uh, wow. Dig and Dig Deep by Richard Arnold. You can still find copies of it on Amazon, and it's a, it's a good little read. I'll it's have like to look into that. Less than 100 pages, short read, but... Um, I'll have to do that. It's yeah. a... Good story. Anyway, anyway, that's a lot of stuff about not Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But it is about World War II, kind of, which is relevant. Yeah, but let's let's not start at the war because that's actually sort of towards the latter part of his life. Um, let's instead start with the fact that he was Lutheran. So what, what do you know about the Lutheran denomination? I mean— do you happen to know when it was started, why it was started, what some of their core beliefs are? I am not super familiar with the Lutherans myself, so. Uh, I'm not super well-versed either. I believe it started in 1517-ish, thereabouts, where Martin Luther nails his 95 theses to the church door there in Germany, and he says, hey, here's 95 things about the Catholic Church, or as they called it at the time, church, that I think are wrong. And the Catholics said, hey, what if you were a heretic and weren't allowed to come to church anymore? (laughs) And Luther said, hey, if that's how you think, then fine. I don't want to hang out with you anyway. Yeah, and, and then now we have Lutherans. And yeah, and if you if you recall our first ever episode where we talk church history for a while too, you might you might recall that Lutheran uh sorry, not Lutheran, Luther doing all of that led to Zwingli and then Zwingli led to the Baptist movement and and gave birth to that. So that's why we have Baptist churches as well. Calvin admired Luther and Calvin started the Presbyterians who become, I believe they become Methodists eventually. Really? Yeah. Huh. Which, if I'm not mistaken, Calvin starts the Presbyterian Church, the Methodists grow out of the Presbyterian Church, and then the Church of God, which is the tradition that I come out of, grew out of the Methodist Church. So, okay. I, I'm... And then eventually people take some stuff John Calvin said more or less out of context slap his name on it I, and then start I their own denomination context it is cuz it's just Calvin starts his thing in Geneva yeah and the things that he says that are um 
lovely and pastoral and a little bit more mediated, the following generation from him takes some of those things and yeah, they're they're no longer quite so pastoral and mediated, and they become five point Calvinism, which is now what the Presbyterians believe. But that has little to nothing to do with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. No, but he he was a Lutheran. Though. He was a Lutheran. So, um, <laughs> Catholic without the Pope, basically. I mean, More, to to some yeah, they, to they, some extent. As far as I understand it, they differ in praxis from the Catholics but not so much in doctrine. So they, yeah. they have a slightly different ecclesiology, and um, they don't have saints that they venerate in the same yep, way the Catholics I, do. I do know that they do uh, hold to some more of the uh, the sacraments, the holy sacraments that the Catholics also hold to in regards to stuff like pedo-baptism. Do they have all seven sacraments? I'm not 100% sure. I just know that's more of a thing there than it is for, say, the Baptists like— my my church and various others um uh one of their core beliefs also is transubstantiation um and to the best of my memory he doesn't mention that in any of the readings that i've read from him but i do know that he does talk about it in some of his works mm. and that he does in fact believe in transubstantiation yeah, so that you have to as a lutheran yeah well I think. I don't know. Um, Have to is a strong word, yeah. but yeah, that's that's a core Lutheran belief. Um, um, so that's the church tradition that Bonhoeffer was a pastor at. Yeah, and I, I believe that—so Lutherans are also really big on, like, the priesthood of the laity. Yeah. Which is that we all have equal access to the power and authority of God through the Holy Spirit. And the priests are not the special, as it were. Which I can get down with that line of thought. Yeah, I, I have mixed feelings about it. I've I've been uh, thinking and reading a lot about uh, the values of hierarchy, mm. especially strict hierarchies and monarchy and whatnot. And I I don't know. I'm still thinking through that. That's that's a topic for another day. Yes, it is. Um, Which has nothing to do with Bonhoeffer. We're saying that a lot. We should probably get into, like, Bonhoeffer. You had any good grilled cheeses lately? No, unfortunately. Well, I had a grilled cheese the other day that was really good, which has nothing to do with Bonhoeffer, but I digress. Yeah, so anyway, um, I I guess my one one sort of, uh, I don't know if warning is the right word, but my one note for this episode. Caveat. Yeah, would be... Just because Luther, uh, Bonhoeffer, man, I'm getting my words messed up. Just because Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran doesn't mean that you should take what he says and say, oh, well, he was Lutheran, so that's bad, or that you shouldn't pay attention to it, or that the things that he did weren't good. Um, are, are there people that are bagging on Bonhoeffer for being Lutheran? Ap- oh, yeah, absolutely. Really? I mean, yeah, I mean, you could look it up and you can find, you know, 30 different articles talking about why. Bonhoeffer was a damnable heretic and wasn't a saved Christian because either he's Lutheran or because of his specific beliefs. Um, well, dang. You, to be fair, you can, you can find that about any yeah. any public figure. They let anyone talk on the internet. Just look at us. But- yeah, so that's, that's not a, a Bonhoeffer-specific thing. But I, I just want to say for, for us that are 
Protestants, or even if you're Catholic, if you're not Protestant, you know, don't don't assume that just because he's Lutheran, that means that everything he says is wrong, and that just because he thinks something differently than you do means that the stuff he did or the stuff he said wasn't valuable to us today in spite of that. Um, Bonhoeffer, as a Lutheran, held some beliefs that I don't really agree with myself, but I also— Am am open to the fact that he was a very faithful man of God and did some incredible work in the name of Christ. And he wrote some really good stuff. And he fought Nazis. Yeah, and there's nothing cooler than fighting Nazis. So if you ever are talking to uh, some sort of um, uncharitable atheist type who's like, the Christians were on board with Hitler during the Holocaust. Punch him in the mouth and talk to them about Bonhoeffer as you get them some ice for that busted lip. Yeah, we're going to get into that here in a little bit as we go through his history. He was openly and very publicly anti-Nazi. Which, if you don't know much about Nazi Germany, that was a dangerous thing to do in Nazi Germany. Yeah, and I think we'll we'll see that as we get towards the end of this episode. But let's let's talk Bonhoeffer's history. Let's let's talk about his life and and that. All right. So, teach me about Bonhoeffer. Well, as Wikipedia puts it, Bonhoeffer was born on the 4th of February in 1906 in Breslau, which was at the time Germany but is now part of modern-day Poland. So, Technically, he's German, but technically, he's Polish? I don't know. Well, German. He, he was German yeah. at the time. Yeah. Germany took part of Poland. Yes. And then Poland took part of Germany back when Nell was said and done. Yeah. So, hey, but Breslau you know. was in Germany at the time and is now part of modern-day Poland. Um and was born into a large family, including a twin sister named Sabine Bonhoeffer, um, who were the sixth and seventh children of the eight in their family. Was he six or seven? It doesn't say, so I'm not 100% sure. All right, then. Yeah. Fair enough. His father, Karl Bonhoeffer, was a psychiatrist and neurologist— and was noted for his criticism of Sigmund Freud. Which, you know, to be fair, there's a lot to criticize there. There sure is. Freud was insane. Yes. Did you know that Freud did, like, so much cocaine? Really? Yeah. Sig- I knew he was kind of nuts. I didn't Sigmund know he did cocaine. Shlomo Freud, because his middle name was Shlomo. Oh. Um, he was Jewish. That's neither here nor there. But he he, uh, he did a lot of cocaine. <laughs> Good for Sigmund Freud. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, um, so I guess Dietrich's father did not much care for him, and uh, his mother, Paula Bonhoeffer, was a teacher and the granddaughter of a Protestant theologian named Car- Karl von Heiss, von Heiss, and a painter. How do you spell that? Uh, Karl, K-A-R-L, von Heiss, H-A-S-E. Okay, cool. Yeah, so that's that's his family, that's his parents and what they did. His father was a very well-educated man. So you could say that uh, Bonhoeffer was coming out of an educated family? 
Yes. A, a very well-educated family. Yes, and you'll you'll see why that's important as we get on here. Of diverse interests and, and understandings, no doubt. Because, yeah. Anyway. Now, when Bonhoeffer was eight years old, he learned to play the piano. And what's cool about that is that by the age of 11, he was performing songs at the Philharmonic, Hmm. which is really impressive. (laughs) That is impressive. As a musician, to learn piano at eight years old, play for two years, and then start playing at the Philharmonic, that's impressive. uh, He must have been a pretty dang good pianist. I can play the harmonica. Can you? Not well. It just oh, sounds okay. like free her, free her, free her. But um, that's my harmonica impression. Uh, <laughs> wow. But the good for Bonhoeffer. Uh, yeah, so he was apparently a very skilled pianist. All right. Which is kind of cool. Um, one Perhaps of his older you could brothers. Say he was a musical genius, maybe? Maybe. 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 Now, this is an interesting fact about his family that is important for a couple of reasons. Um, One of his older brothers, Walter Bonhoeffer, who was the second born in the family, was killed in action during World War I when Dietrich was 12 years old. So Dietrich lived through World Wars I and II. Well, he didn't live through the second one, but we'll get there. Um, He he almost made it. He was so close. Um, So close. Yeah, but the second born child amongst his siblings, was killed during World War I when he was 12 years old. Do, do we have any information about where his older brother was fighting when he, when he was killed? No, I don't have that specifically pulled up. Like I said, these are kind of just footnotes. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be interesting to, to dig into because Hitler was also a— I'm assuming that he fought for Germany because he was— yeah, a German. I don't know. And Hitler was also a World War One veteran for the German army. Yeah, and and it'd be interesting if they to dig into that and see if Walter Bonhoeffer and Hitler ever cross paths. I hope not. Oh, yeah, me too. Well, anyway, now at age fourteen, Bonhoeffer decides to do something that will forever change history. Do you know what that thing is, William? He. No, I don't know. I have no idea. Mm, Well, at age 14, Bonhoeffer decided to pursue his education in theology, despite the criticism of his older brothers Klaus, who was a lawyer, and Karl, who was a scientist. So, 14 years old, and Dietrich starts pursuing theology. Do they let 14-year-olds do that? Like, apparently. Seems a little young, but all right, good for him. Is anyone ever too young to start doing theology, William? Uh, babies. Touche. <laughs> babies can't do theology because <laughs> they can't talk. They don't understand words. That's fair enough. Well, yeah, so 14 is when Bonhoeffer starts digging into theology. And that's really important because that ends up shaping literally the rest of his life and the direction that he takes it. It's a big decision to make when you're 14. No kidding. I mean, to be fair, I'm not entirely sure that the average life expectancy back then was as good as it is today. I mean, it it wasn't too bad at that point in history. We had antibiotics by then, so... Fair enough. You you were less likely to get killed from a stubbed toe by (laughs) this point in history. 
Yeah, so at 14 years old, he decided to take Hebrew as an elective in school and attended a bunch of evangelical meetings, uh, quote, moved by the many sufferings that resulted from war, such as hungry and orphaned children. When I was 14, I played Skyrim one day for approximately 14 hours, and after doing oh. that, I realized I had not eaten or drank anything all day because I had been playing Skyrim for 14 hours, so I went upstairs and made a ham sandwich. Um, so, you know, two paths diverge in the woods. <laughs> one of them is learning Hebrew, and the other <laughs> is playing Skyrim for 14 hours. Yeah, so that's that's what Bonhoeffer does at 14 years old, which is... Really weird to think about because, man, when I was 14, I-, I wish I could go back and slap myself in the face and gone, go learn Greek. Go go do that. Are, are you learning Greek now, Ryan? No, and I really should be. <laughs> if, if you fast forward to yourself like eight years in the future, do you think that eight years in the future you will be upset with modern you for not learning Greek now? Probably. Anyway, so anyway. He, he starts getting into that. And at that point, he begins his studies at Tübingen. Tübingen. Übingen? Übingen? I don't know. Tübingen? And then eventually moved to the University of Berlin, where he submitted his successful dissertation, Sanctorum Communo, at the age of 21, on the 17th of December. Like his doctoral dissertation? Yes, at the age of 21. That's dang on the 17th of December, 1927, he went on to complete his Doctorate of Theology degree from Humboldt University of Berlin, graduating summa cum laude. I feel dumb. He was 21. I feel dumb. He was about two years younger than I am now, and he had finished his doctorate summa cum laude from Humboldt University of Berlin. He also knew Hebrew. Dang it. I feel dumb. So what, what we're getting at is that he was a very well-educated individual. And not only was he well-educated, he was probably almost certainly smarter than you. He's definitely yeah. smarter than me, so when he says stuff, you should listen to old Dietrich. Yeah, so fast forward a few years, and in 1930, Bonhoeffer moved to America with the interest of, interest of attaining a Sloan Fellowship at New York City's Union Theological Seminary. Uh, (laughs) And I find this hilarious. Bonhoeffer was, quote, greatly unimpressed with American theology. And, you know, that's fair. He described the students as lacking interest in theology and would, quote, laugh out loud when learning a passage from Luther's sin and forgiveness. And, you know, that would definitely uh, tick off Bonhoeffer because he's, you know, a Lutheran. A Lutheran. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that would do it. Yep, so while he was there, he met Frank Fisher, a black fellow uh, seminarian who introduced him to the Abyssian Baptist Church in Harlem, where Bonhoeffer taught Sunday school and formed a lifelong love for the African-American church. So, see— Baptists and Lutherans can get along. You can be friends. We can all be buddies. You can hang out. Yeah. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. Look at denominational divides. Yeah. And keeping people apart. While he was there doing that, he also heard Adam Clayton Powell Sr. 
preached the gospel of social justice and, quote, became sensitive to the social injustices experienced by ethnic minorities in the U.S., as well as the ineptitude of churches to bring about integration. Okay. In other words, he didn't care for racism. I'm going to keep it real with you. Yeah. I'm not totally sure who that dude was. I don't know. Oh, okay. I don't know either. I was wondering if he was like a major, like... Let's let's click his link and find out. Civil rights dude that I should know about. Adam Clayton Powell, senior, was an American pastor who developed the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, New York, as the largest Protestant congregation in the country with 10,000 members. He was an African-American community advocate, author, and the father of Congressman Adam Clayton Powell, Jr., Born into poverty in southwest Virginia, he put himself through school and Wayland Seminary, where he was ordained in 1892. So, influential American pastor from roughly this time period. Yeah, so he heard that, and then Bonhoeffer decided, I don't much care for racist people. Good for Bonhoeffer. That's going to be really important here pretty soon. (laughs) My dear listeners, if you didn't know this, racism... Is bad. bad. <laughs> Don't be racist. Yeah, so that happened. Um, we're going to skip ahead a little bit. Um, past that stra- that stuff, basically he, he just preaches in America for a while and does his best to integrate colored people into church because that's what you ought to do. Later, he became involved with the ecumenical Christian movement, which eventually led him to the resistance of Hitler and the Nazis. Yeah, screw those guys. Yeah. Yeah. We don't like them. Hitler was bad. Yeah, so so that's that's where we're at right now, right? He he's in America where he learned that racism is wrong. Yes, in the 1930s. He's preaching and he's doing his best to stop racism and generally just being a pretty cool dude. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Now, you and I know this, but Bonhoeffer doesn't stay in America. It's true. and He, he it, doesn't stay there. It makes me sad to think about because he, he he left Germany just in time for things to not be Nazified, and then he goes back after it's Nazified, which is sad. As sad as it is, it's a good thing. And in, you'll see that it's a good in thing. In the grand scheme of things, yes. He was doing the Lord's work. So, in 1931, he returned to Germany and became a lecturer in systematic theology at the University of Berlin. What do you know? That's in Germany. Full circle. So he goes back and starts teaching systematic theology at the University of Berlin and was deeply interested in ecumenism. You ecumenism? 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 Ecumenism. Yeah, that's the one. Ecumenism. We're going to skirt past that cuz so uh, yeah, the role and functions of the church. Yeah. And eventually, he was appointed by the World Alliance for Promoting International Friendship Throughout the Churches. Uh, a foreigner of the World Council, forerunner of the World Council of Churches, as one of its three European youth secretaries. 
At the time, he seems to have undergone a personal converse, uh, conversion as he changed from being a theologian primarily attracted to the intellectual side of Christianity to being a dedicated man of personal faith resolved to literally carry out the teachings of Christ revealed in the Gospels. Do you think that's a, a fair characterization of Bonhoeffer? I think so. That um, that he wasn't always like deeply personally impassioned and engaged, and he just thought of theology as like a fun intellectual thing, or probably you think? And I think the whole Nazification thing played into that. Yeah, that, that'll that'll give you a kick in the seat of your pants and make you uh, make you really evaluate things yeah. in a different way. Yeah, so then in November of 1931, at the age of 25, he was ordained at Old Prussian United, St. Matthew, in Berlin. So he was ordained at 25 years old in a different denomination. So that's cool. I feel like a failure. Yeah. (laughs) Comparatively. Now... This is where we get into something interesting. Do you know what church group Bonhoeffer was a founding member of? Mm, it's like the, uh starts with a C. The it Confessing does. Church? Yes, sir. Yeah. The Confessing Church. Yeah, so he that starts a, because uh, the Lutherans, if I'm recalling correctly, the as the national denomination of Germany kind of had an option of either affirming Hitler and the Nazi stuff or getting dead. So they ended up kind of affirming Hitler and the Nazi stuff. And those that didn't ended up getting dead and being replaced by people that did. So Bonhoeffer was like, well, if you guys are going to be into Nazis, I'm going to go do something else. Yeah. So in the words of Wikipedia, Bonhoeffer's promising academic and ecclesiastical career was dramatically knocked off course by the Nazi ascent to power on the 30th of January in 1933. He was a determined opponent of the regimen from its first days. Two days, only two days after Hitler was installed as chancellor, Bonhoeffer delivered a radio address in which he attacked Hitler and warned Germany against slipping into an idolatrous cult of the Führer, a.k.a. leader, who could very well turn out to be the Führer, a.k.a. misleader or seducer. That would never happen. No. No. (laughs) Interestingly, though, do you know what happens during that radio broadcast? Oh, he gets cut off. Yes. They they turn him off the air. So his broadcast was abruptly cut off, um, and to this day, it has not been confirmed whether or not it was the Nazis who cut him off, or if it was just radio interference, or something happened. We're not 100% sure, but it was probably the Nazis. It was probably the Nazis. Yeah, so two days. This was two days after Hitler came to power, and he's already speaking out against Hitler. So again, publicly, when you have a friend or a coworker who's a jaded atheist, and they're like, Christians supported Hitler, or Hitler was a Christian, or whatever, again, punch them in the face. Maybe don't do that. No? Because, okay. no, punching people in the face is a bad idea. Okay, don't, well, technically don't do that. it's a crime and also just mean... <laughs> So don't punch them, but make them read Bonhoeffer's Wikipedia page because there were no shortage of Christians in Germany that were like, hey, this Nazi stuff sucks. Yeah, and we see more of this too because, let's see, in April of 1933, 
Bonhoeffer raised his first voice for church resistance to Hitler's persecution of Jews, declaring that the church must not simply, quote, bandage the victims under the wheel, but jam a spoke in the wheel itself. Which is so cool sounding. Right? It's so cool. So what he's basically done is, two days after Hitler comes to power, he's publicly saying, hey, maybe don't listen to this guy. He gets cut off. And then shortly thereafter starts addressing the church and pleading for them to not just help the Jews when they're already down on their luck, but in his own words, jam a, a spoke in the wheel itself. Let's do something about it. Yeah, it's pretty pretty sweet. Yeah. So after that, we're going to skip here a little bit. In 1932, basically the long and short of it is the German government forces on the church a new vote for leadership. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was very adamant that his church fellows vote for not Nazi-affiliated church leaders. Which is a reasonable request, yes, to be sure. But unfortunately, his, uh, his cries fell mostly on deaf ears as numerous Nazi-affiliated church leaders were appointed at the time. If the, the votes were actually well, carried out in good faith, it's entirely possible that they were... Yeah, uh, installed as sympathetic figureheads that it's also didn't really get worth elected. noting that these uh these church votes that they forced onto the church. Um Hitler specifically did this by the way. This was something yes. Hitler did and according to Wikipedia, he did so unconstitutionally as well. So not only did he force them to do this, he did so illegally, which is not outside the character for Hitler. It's like, God, oh, geez, just when you think Hitler's can't get any worse, he he violates constitutional rights, man. Yeah, in, in the words of this, in July of that year, uh, an overwhelming number of key church positions went to Nazi-supported people, which is bad. So that happens, unfortunately. Um yeah, I don't know what to say about that. Ah, oh, man, that sucks. Um, yeah, I, I mean, here I go sounding Catholic again, but if it were Catholic churches, he, he couldn't be like, hey, you guys need to vote new people in to lead, because that's not how it's how it's done for them. Yeah, yeah. That if you uh, oust your priest at the Catholic Church at your local uh, Catholic diocese, you just don't have a priest anymore. Yeah, yeah. Now it's also worth mentioning up to this point, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has written numerous books already. We haven't mentioned any of them, but he's written numerous books at this point as well. So on top of all of his crazy young age that he got his his degrees and, and doctorates at, that he was ordained, that he started preaching numerous times, he moved countries. In the midst of all that, he still found time to write numerous books. Why haven't you written any books, Ryan? Because I'm bad at it. <laughs> and I'm willing to admit that. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I am not a, a well-written author, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, so he's written numerous books at this point. 
he has not yet written his most famous books. Those are yet to come. Um, And we're going to get into those in a little bit. So Nazis take over the church, basically, and that's a big kerfuffle. So in opposition to Nazification, Bonhoeffer urged for an interdict. Interdict? Yeah. Yeah. Interdict. That's how you pronounce that. An interdict to stop offering all pastoral ceremonial services, which include baptisms, confirmations, weddings, funerals, and otherwise. Yeah, so he's uh, calling the clergy to go on strike, basically. Yeah, Yeah, he's basically saying, hey, until we get these Nazis out of here, we're not going to do pastor things. Um. However, Karl Barth, uh, who was a church leader at the time as well, uh, amongst some others, advised and, against such, quote, radical propositions. And Barth, he's also a, a majorly influential, influential theologian from the mid-20th century. Yes, and I'd love to uh, talk about him sometime, too. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Karl Barth didn't much care for that idea. He thought that was not the right approach. Bonhoeffer thought it was a good idea. It is and what then it is. Barth and Bonhoeffer got into a fist fight. No. No, that didn't happen. No, so as Dang. much as we talk about uh, Bonhoeffer fighting Nazis, believe it or not, he never actually fights Nazis. I mean, that we have historical yeah. records of. We'll get to that, though. Um, so basically, he and Herman Sacy, Sasse, Sacy, Saucy Herman. Yeah. <laughs> ba- Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Saucy Herman were deputized by opposition church leaders to draft the Bethel Confession as a new statement of faith in opposition to the Dutch Christian movement. Notable for affirming God's fidelity to Jews as his chosen people, the Bethel Confession was eventually so watered down to make it more pl- palatable that ultimately Bonhoeffer refused to sign it. Imagine writing something about how Christians ought to be and then an editor getting a hold of it and ruining it so much that you're like, you you killed it. Yeah. I want no part of this anymore. How sad is that? Yeah. It makes me wonder what the, uh, the OG version looked like. I wonder if we yeah. could get that. Well, maybe. I don't know. Anyway. We've got less time than I thought we did already. We've got like 20 minutes left. Oh, geez. Yeah, this is flying. Um, so we're going to skip ahead here a little bit. Um, all I'm going to say about this part of his life is basically he goes back to London. So he goes from Germany to America, back to Germany during Nazi leadership, and then leaves for London also in the midst of Nazi leadership. So he gets out, right? He manages to avoid the Nazis, right? Yeah. Bonhoeffer's uh, going to be okay? No. So uh, even as this puts it here, uh, he didn't go to London to escape the Nazism of Germany. He goes there to preach because, of course, he does. Uh, And basically, he just— he gets appointed as a two-year German Lutheran priest, more or less. Hmm. Um, and and preaches for a couple of years. Um, yeah, in, in the words of Wikipedia, Bonhoeffer, however, did not go to England simply to avoid trouble at home. He hoped to put the ecumenical movement to work in the interest of the confessing church. So basically, he wanted to spread his church group that he had started. Yeah, he, he wanted to, to spread it and, 
get some support from churches there in the England. Yeah, so this is where stuff gets interesting. Because we're finally at the part of Bonhoeffer's life where he starts fighting some freaking Nazis. Heck yeah. So in 1935, Bonhoeffer was offered a coveted opportunity to study nonviolent resistance under Gandhi in his ashram. Gandhi wanted to teach Bonhoeffer. How neat is that? I mean, I'm I'm not a super big fan of Gandhi. I mean, no, personally, but it's interesting. Uh, it's interesting. I, I presume that Bonhoeffer does not take yes. the internship. Well, he was offered, but however, remembering Barth's rebuke, so call back to Barth there, he decided to return to Germany instead. So, brother is born in Germany, leaves for America, comes back to Germany, leaves for London, and then instead of going to meet Gandhi, goes back to Germany again. Which was admittedly a, a better use of his time. It again, was. I, I, I have negative things to say about Gandhi, but we can talk about that some other time. Yeah, so he returns to Germany and was then appointed the head of an underground seminary in Finkenwabel. <laughs> can, can you read that location name for me again? Finkenwabel. 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 For training name confessing for church <laughs> pastors. So at this point, there's a lot of, uh, shall we say, religious persecution happening in Germany. Uh, I, I think it would be fair to say Germany's full Nazi at this point. Yeah, and so he can no longer be an openly preaching pastor like he was several years ago because it's worse than it was then. And now he has to lead an underground seminary. Do you think they actually did it underground or was it just like That would be pretty cool. Did they do it in like, I don't know, basements or something? Maybe. So it talks a little bit about how in order to support this, he had to acquire funds um, and had some very wealthy benefactors who who supported his seminary, including a, a woman by the name of Ruth von Kleist Retzval. What a name. <laughs> Was she German? It sounds like a German name. I, let's, let's check. I mean, I, I was joking. I'm, I'm, I don't know. Reasonably sure that she had to be German. Yes, German nobility, in fact. Yes, she had to be German with a name like that. Was born into German nobility and married a Prussian army family. Into a Prussian army family. Mm, of course. Yes. So, yeah, he had some wealthy benefactors who were supporting him in his underground church, basically. Which is cool. So he goes around doing that for a while. Now, in 1937, Gestapo, whoever that is. It's the, the secret police. Yes. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah. The Gestapo. I knew that. Yeah, the Gestapo, the Gestapo oh closed the seminary in Finkenwadel. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. And by November, arrested 27 pastors and former students of that seminary. That's, that's unfortunate. Now, it was around this time that Bonhoeffer published his best-known book, The Cost of Discipleship a study on the Sermon on the Mount in which he not only attacked, quote, cheap grace as a cover for ethical laxity against the values of, quote, costly grace. 
So the cost of discipleship is certainly Bonhoeffer's most well-known work. I just finished it not that long ago myself. It's very good. Yeah, I read it uh, earlier this year. It's incredible, I would even go as far to say. Um, one of the better reads I've I've given my time to in recent years. I very much enjoyed it. And I would highly suggest anyone to pick it up and read it. It's It's got some really good stuff. He spends a bit of it talking about, you know, this is what it means to be a disciple, and these are the consequences of that. And basically, life's going to suck, but hey, do it anyway. And he uh, speaks from a place of... Of uh, personal experience. Yeah, and it's a deeply convicting book. It's super convicting. Yeah, it's very challenging. There there were times that I, I was sitting there reading, and I was just like, oh, oh, man, I suck. Dang it. <laughs> man. Here I go sinning again. Yeah, um, it's around this same time that he also publishes Life Together, Um. I'm not 100% sure if that was before or after the cost of discipleship, but it's roughly around the same time um, while he's in Germany there. Um, I know specifically Life Together, he he wrote while he was living in a, basically a secret Jewish camp hiding from Nazis. And the sense of community amongst the Jewish people there within inspired him to write that book. It's a much shorter book. It's like 80 pages or something. It's super short, really easy read. And it's just a, a really nice little book about doing life together as fellows in Christ and how that ought to look. And it's really good, so I suggest reading that also. Um, you can find most of his stuff for pretty cheap. It's all very widely available. Um, that's all we're going to talk about his writings for today because we don't have a ton of time, and I'd like to do dedicated episodes to some of those writings at some point. Yeah, that'd be sweet. Um, so yeah, just know that he wrote those while in Germany, preaching while running from the Germans. Yeah, and it's yeah. There, there's a certain uh, authentic authority that comes from writing something about the cost of being faithful to Christ, while it's costing you something to be faithful to Christ. Yeah. Uh, so he he publishes those books and then. Roughly for the next two years, he is secretly traveling from one eastern German village to another to conduct a, quote, seminary on the run, supervising the continuing education and work of his students, most of whom were working illegally in small parishes within the old Prussian ecclesiastical providence of Pomerania. So at this point, he's he's just kind of going place to place, spreading the word of Jesus as best as he can while also not getting arrested by Nazis. Which was a hard thing to do at that point in German history. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't wasn't that easy. They, they liked arresting people. Now, in 1938, the Gestapo banned Bonhoeffer from Berlin. They outright said, you're not welcome here anymore. You ever been banned from anywhere, Ryan? No. No, I haven't. Oh, all right. Have you? Uh, I'm not going to talk about that. (laughs) Mm, Okay. Anyway, (laughs) yeah. um, And in the summer of 1939, the seminary was unable to move to Sigurdshof. I'm so sorry about these pronunciations. You know, here's an idea. Sigurdshof. Perhaps you should just say a town. Yes, an outlying estate of the von Kleist family 
in a place. And in March 1940, the Gestapo shut down the underground seminary there following the outbreak of World War II. So World War II has officially begun. Bonhoeffer has been formally banned from Berlin, and his underground seminary has been eradicated by the German Nazi leadership. So that's really unfortunate. Okay, yeah, so it's then that he post uh, publishes Life Together. Okay. Because it's at that point he's living with some Jewish people who are on the run. All right, all right, all right, so. Yeah. Um, now, you might think that that's where, that might be where it ends, that he's just stuck in Germany because World War II's broke, broken out and eventually the Nazis catch up and kill him, right? You might think that. No, can you guess where Bonhoeffer goes next? Uh, Canada. Back to the USA. Oh. South Canada. He's gone <laughs> back to America. And then he stays in America, right? And he stays safe from the Nazis, right? That's what happens, right, Ryan? Sure. Now, I'm going to skim over this a little bit, but long story short... His brother-in-law, who was a member of the German resistance, ropes Dietrich Bonhoeffer in to an underground spy coup seeking to overthrow Hitler from leadership. And for those of our listeners that might not know this, Ryan and I are actually brothers-in-law. So, Ryan, if someone were to take over the government and be a Nazi— and you were to be a part of an underground spy ring that has an intention of assassinating said person, can you do me a favor and not rope me into it? I don't know. Can can you do that for me? (laughs) I can try. Don't rope me into your assassination plots. I I will do my best. And I won't rope you into my assassination plots. That's that's fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, although it doesn't necessarily say... It's an assassination plot specifically. So the, what it says is that their plan was to overthrow Hitler. My right? understanding of it is that Dietrich Bonhoeffer's brother-in-law is part of this plan. Their plan is to assassinate Hitler and to perform a coup. And he mentions Bonhoeffer in his journal. And it's unclear as far as I understand it, whether or not how much Dietrich Bonhoeffer was involved in the actual planning, but yeah. because he's mentioned in his brother-in-law's journal, he when they find it, they're like, yes, of course. Yeah. So then he gets in trouble for that. Well, anyway, yeah, so he gets roped into a spy plot to overthrow and potentially assassinate Hitler. Um, as one does. Yeah. So that was in 1939, which is when he's back in America at the invitation of the Union Theological Seminary in New York. Now, after spending a little time there, he actually writes to the seminary and has something to say to them. D- do you know what, what that thing was, William? The Union Theological Seminary? Yeah, because they were the ones who invited him back to America. That's why he's in America right now. Uh, You guys suck. I'm out. No. I'm going to read this whole quote that he wrote to them because this is great. I have come to the conclusion that I have made a mistake in coming to America this time. 
I must live through this difficult period in our national history along with the people of Germany. I have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany will have to face this terrible, the terrible alternative of either willing, willing to defeat... Ooh, sorry, I can't read. Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that the future of Christian civilization may survive or else willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying our civilization and any true Christianity. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from a place of security. So what does he do, William? He goes back to (laughs) Germany. He goes back to Germany in 1940. (laughs) Which is a bad time to go to Germany. Yeah. So at this point, he's... Been in Germany, left it. Been back in Germany, left it. Been back in Germany, left it. And now he's back in Germany again. He, he He's back in Germany again, man. And if I recall correctly, this is where he stays. This is for the last time. Finally. He will remain in Germany. So, to make a very long story short, he goes about doing his Nazi spy antics. And and attempts to overthrow the Nazi government and Hitler. Does it work? Unfortunately, no. The Nazis catch on to them. Dang. Yeah, under... Yeah, it's, it's a shame. But uh, they, they got caught up too. And on April 5th of 1943, both Bonhoeffer and another leader of his coup, the... Uh, of his coup by the name of... Donanyi, I think, were both arrested and imprisoned. This is this is 1943, okay? So we've got two-ish years before the end of the war, right? Yep. So over the next two and a half years, Bonhoeffer remains in prison-ish, somewhere in that time frame, two-ish years. He remains in prison and eventually gets sent to a concentration camp. Which is worse than prison. Yes. From my understanding of things. Yeah, so he gets sent to Flossenburg Concentration Camp um, in 1945, the 8th of April, 1945. And this will be where he spends the rest of his life. Um, And while he's in prison, he's not entirely idle. He writes a, a number of letters that are available to read, that you can find, and they are um, beautiful and tragic and challenging to the faithful and worth reading. Um, so I encourage you to seek those out. And Yeah, and look. that's not all he does. Because while he's in this concentration camp awaiting execution, because he knows it's coming, while he's in this concentration camp awaiting execution, what does he do? but start a church in the concentration camp. Like you do, you know. So he starts preaching to the other prisoners, but not just to the prisoners, but to the Nazi guards. And they get in on it. And what ends up happening is some of the guards end up secretly moving him from cell to cell, like in the midst of the nightly hours, so he could preach to the other prisoners. Some of the guards were in on it with him. They were letting him preach. Which is 
pretty cool. Yeah. Imagine being so good at preaching that you convince Nazis to be a little bit less Nazi-ish. Alas, it, it didn't end well. He was executed by hanging on, at the dawn of the 9th of April, 1945. If I recall correctly, uh, Hitler himself ordered the execution. Yes. Um, and like, what, two, three days later, yeah. he uh, unalives himself, as yes. it were. So Hitler, slide. Yeah, Hitler saw what was coming down the pipe, and he said... You know, before I die... Kill the pastor. Kill that guy. Yeah, so he was stripped of his clothing and led naked to the execution yard where he was hanged with six others. Admiral Wilhelm Canarsis, Canarsis? General Hans Oster, um, a deputy named Canaris, I believe, uh, General Carl Sack, a military, military jurist, businessman Theodore... Sternick, and German resistance fighter Ludwig Gehr. A student and close friend of Bonhoeffer, whose name I won't even try to pronounce this time because I know I can't, writes of a man who saw the execution. I'm going to read this out. Quote, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on, the f- kneeling on the floor praying fervently to God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. And that is the written account that we have of his, of his execution and therefore martyrdom, making Bonhoeffer one of the more recent and notable martyrs in our history, which is really sad. What do you think he prayed about? I don't know. That's that's a tough question to answer. Yeah, I mean, it's impossible to answer. Yeah, I have mean, no idea. It, part of me wants to say that it was a prayer for for the German people to do better and for the Nazi leadership to see the error of their ways and to convert. I could be totally wrong about that, but he spent so much time reaching the German people before his death willingly, despite the Nazism, that I I just wonder in his final moments if that's the same thing that was running through his head. Just, man, do, do what you will with these Nazis, God, you know? <laughs> as goofy as that um, sounds, but like, you know, reach them, do your thing. I, I think you're probably right. I mean, I, I have no evidence to back that up and neither does anyone else. We don't know what he prayed, but I, I think it would be, it's in keeping with the rest of Bonhoeffer's story and life for his last moments to be prayers for Germany. Yeah. Now, there's there's just a couple things to close out here about this, which is that it was very shortly after his execution that the concentration camp he was being held at was liberated. Yeah, I mean, the war is over within—he's he, executed on April 9th? Yes. So. 
I, I don't remember. Uh, yeah, offhand. the wiki didn't have the exact date for whatever reason. Oh, uh, when did Hitler get dead? Mm-mm-mm. Was April thirtieth. So not not as soon after Bonhoeffer's uh, execution as I thought it was. Yeah. Um, so he was executed on on April ninth, right? Yeah, and Hitler killed himself April 30th, so it, it was yes, very shortly thereafter. More notably, the concentration camp he was being held in was liberated on April 23rd. Mm. Less than 20 days after his execution, uh, so it was close. liberated and the prisoners he were He was free. so close. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his life and what he did and yeah, um, uh, the only other note to say is that we don't know where his remains are. No? Um, no, so apparently the Nazis did something with his body. Well, I have a couple guesses. Yeah, um, they never found it. We don't know if they burned it or buried it and threw or, or threw it in a lake. We don't know. So we, we do not have his remains, unfortunately. But that's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And all I've really got to say about that is if you heard all that and got his history there and you still think, well, he was a Lutheran, so he's a heretic and he's going to hell, I I feel sorry for you. (laughs) Uh, um, Because I'm sorry, but having read through that and heard through a lot of that, I mean, what an incredibly faithful man. Yeah, I, I think um, if you have negative things to say about Bonhoeffer that aren't, you know, reasonable criticisms, because anyone who writes things is going to say things that yeah, are wrong. Yeah, I mean, we could talk all day about transubstantiation yeah. and whether but or not him believing that was wrong. I, I think you are, are compelled to admit that at the very least he was faithful. Um, and and he, he tried. And you know what? I I don't have the number, so I don't know how many people his his work led to conversion directly. I mean, I don't it's, know. It's still doing that. The, his writings, still yeah, have impact but and he did more in his lifetime than most of us could ever hope to do for the faith and for the church. Heck man, by the time he was twenty one, he'd done more than I've done. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, so that would just be my my closing note is just regardless if you've got issues with some of his personal beliefs, with his theology, with the Lutheran church, it it is hard to deny the faithfulness and the piousness that that he had. Yeah. And and I think it's uh it would be intellectually dishonest to do so if you said things about Bonhoeffer being unorthodox or what have you, that, that would just be coming from a place of uh, dishonesty and negligence on your part because his life proves otherwise. Yeah, so any closing thoughts? We're a few minutes over as it is. This one ran a little bit long, but any any closing thoughts on Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Oh, I don't have anything else important to add um, other right. than an encouragement for you, our dear listeners, to... Um, Go pick up one of his books. Give it a read. 
Yeah, at and his uh, prison letters. Look, read the first chapter of the Cost of Discipleship. That's my favorite chapter in it. It's a good chapter. It's a very good chapter. Um, look at Life Together and any of his other stuff. And I, I'm sure it will benefit you. Yeah, and like I said, I hope to do some dedicated episodes to some of those uh, those books in the future here and talk about them specifically and what he had to say because as awesome and as cool as it was to talk about him and his the stuff he did and him himself, uh, what I think is also cool is the stuff he wrote and what specifically he had to say. So we'll do that sometime. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. Tune in next week for our very special Halloween episode. Spooky, spooky. It's going to be spooky. It'll be a good time. Um, oh, uh, the pandering. Uh, like, comment, subscribe. Yeah. Leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. If you leave a review talking about the podcast, we will read your review on the podcast. Ooh. And then, if your review is positive, then we will thank you for the kind words. And if your review is negative, we will tell you why you can shove it. Yeah, and uh, if you're Canada Man from last episode, Canada Man, you still haven't emailed us. I'm Belgium waiting. Belgium guy? Yeah, Belgium dude. Belgium dude and Denmark. Well, Denmark dude and Belgium bro. Yeah. But uh, the Canada man, we specifically shouted you out last time. Email us, leave a comment, bro. Come on, let's yeah, we, we let's need talk. To know, I, I need to know where all of you came from, because <laughs> I, I don't know. How did yeah. you find? How anyway, did you find we're us? we're anyway. running long. We gotta go. Thanks for listening. Like, comment, subscribe. Leave a, an email. All that good stuff. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time. Thanks. Bye.